Good morning. I have to confess I'm a bit nervous about standing up in front of all of you and talking about sex, but it's not like I haven't done it before. Uh, I do want to apologize to my human sexuality class and to the Christian mind class. Some of this material is uh, stuff you've already heard. Not all of it. There's some new material, but um, uh, it never hurts, hurts to hear it again. So, um, just acknowledging what Grant had to say, um, we really are, as Christians, in a unique cultural situation because on one side we are surrounded and swimming in uh, kind of a stew of sexual libertinism um, where just with a click of a mouse uh, you can be at a, a pornographic site, uh, sometimes not even intending to, and then on the other side, we won't talk very much about this today, but the church has not done a good job of talking about sex. Um, you've probably heard stuff in youth group. Maybe um, women you heard be modest. Men you heard don't watch pornography. Um, but not, not too much more detail on that. And so some of you have come up through the purity movement. Maybe you kissed dating goodbye. Um, maybe you fought every man's battle or every young woman's battle, where you were taught that um, somehow sex is bad. Well, it's not. Sex is not bad because of who created it. Sex is good. Um, so let me tell you where we're going today. I want to talk about God's design for sex, number one. Uh, number two, I want to talk a little bit about... Um, Perspectives on dating. Now, I do this with a little trepidation since I haven't dated in 29 years. Uh, and when I was dating, it was my wife. Um, but here we go. I am a psychologist, so I think I can talk about that kind of stuff. Number three, I want to propose a countercultural perspective. As I said, we're in a culture where on the one side we have anything goes, on the other side we have... Um, sex is dirty and filthy and you only share it with people that you love, someone that you love. So I want to propose a third way. That's my hope. So what is God's design for sex? Well, be to begin with, I want to talk about the creator. Who created the, the glorious majesty of the creator God? And one of my favorite passages that highlights this is from the book of Job. God is talking to Job. He is saying to him, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And where were its bases sunk? And on who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I know I mangled it a little bit, but this is the God who created this. And then on the sixth day... He created us. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Now, I know we've, you've heard this verse multiple times, um, but it is packed with meaning for us in terms of not only our theological anthropology, but also our sexuality. Whether you like it or not, you are sexual. 
And you know how you know that you're sexual? By the bathroom you use. We are all sexual beings. It doesn't mean that we're sexually active, but it means that we are uh, sexed. We have a sex. Um, and so that sexuality is an, an essence uh, of who we are. It's a very important part of our identity, which is why what we do is so important with our sexuality. So <clears throat> this is a, a quotation from a biblical scholar commenting on this. He says that thus the most basic statement about man that he is the image of God does not find its full meaning in man alone, but in man and woman. There is something that happens when men and women are together imaging God. That relationship they have, whether it's a marriage relationship or other relationships, men and women together uh, reflect the fullness of the image of God. Now, this is Genesis 2.22. This is after um, Adam has been put to sleep and uh, he is presented with his wife Eve. And he said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I wish I had more time to go into a lot of this, but the point is that this was a proclamation, a covenant Proclamation: The use of the, of the phrases flesh of my flesh and bone of my bone. It, <clears throat> Old Testament language is a reflection of the covenant. And so in a sense, <coughs> uh, Adam is uttering the first wedding vows. And if you think about flesh and bone, one represents weakness, the other represents strength. Think about modern wedding vows, what you vow to do when you marry one another, for better, for worse... Um, and so forth. So, it is a statement of the couple's reciprocal loyalty to one another. There is a sense of complementariness that goes with being man and woman together. Now, uh, throw a little psychology of religion in here. Um, Think about a wedding. What happens at a wedding? It's not just getting dressed up in nice clothes and having people uh, shove cake at you. The belief is God is acting in that wedding. It's called a special agent ritual, if you want to use the jargon. And across cultures and across time, these kinds of rituals are performed. They're not done commonly. And they are typically accompanied by something called sensory pageantry, which means you remember what what happened. It's something that is memorable So the use of the the white dress, the flowers, the lights, the music, all of those things are designed to communicate God is at work in this ritual. And it's reflected by what Jesus said, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So a, a, a wedding... And the sexual union of two people is a very important act. It is something that is the essence of God's creation. And so, Genesis it goes on to say, For a man shall leave his mother, father and his mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
and the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Again, there's a lot of information that's packed into this two, two verses. Um, so first is the leaving. Uh, I'm sure you've all heard the leaving and cleaving. Um, I actually prefer joining because when I think of cleaving, I think of cutting something. So it doesn't, it kind of doesn't work for me. But joining is, this is an, ex, uh, an exclusive relationship. Uh, I'm sorry, leaving. It means that you are saying to your old life, your old obligations, um, even your family, that this marriage is the most important thing. Um, some would even say you could interpret it as abandoning. Uh, it's that strong a sense. The second is joining. So this is also a very strong term, and it means sticking close as uh, flesh to bone, uh, clinging to. And then finally, becoming one flesh, that this is a life-uniting consummation that begins with a commitment to leave, a commitment to cling, and then uh, uniting the lives in sexual intercourse. It seals and reinforces the marriage covenant. Number one, it's for the purpose of expressing love, enjoying sexual pleasure. After all, God did make the nerve endings that we have. And also for children. Um, and so the children that are created in this covenant marriage, this commitment, are part of a family, part of a one flesh union um, that is established by God. Now, um, how many of you have heard a sermon on the Song of Songs? Okay, a few hands. Good. couple, okay. Um, this is from the Song of Songs. I don't want to embarrass anybody. Um, but this is testament to the erotic sanctity of sex. This is between uh, Solomon and the Shulamite bride. Uh, and Solomon's speaking, how beautiful is your love, my sister. Translation for that is intimate connection, if there is any questions. Uh, my bride, how much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils than any spice? Your lips drip nectar, my bride. Honey and milk are under your tongue. The fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. Now, I wouldn't encourage you to take this literally. I don't think she really had uh, honey and milk under her tongue. Maybe she did. But the point is, this is a sensual expression of the sweetness of their erotic attraction to one another. Uh, and this is God's word. This is God's word because God created sex. Now, we have to uh, acknowledge that Sexual desire is good, but it's fallen. Um, and then, unfortunately, we see evidence of this throughout the Old Testament and all around us today, that it's distorted our desire through any number of sexual sins. So, before we go any further, um, and I always try to make this point at, at some point when I talk about sex, um, we are all sexually broken, because we're, we are fallen. Um, 
I'm sure that um, some of you, maybe many of you, have been engaged in some form of uh, sexual sin. Um, and maybe you were told that therefore you are damaged goods. Well, let me repudiate that in the strongest terms. You are not goods. You are people made in the image of God. You are fallen and forgiven. You're not a can of soup that fell off the shelf. So please remember this. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. When he talks about sexual ethics, he says, we learn on one hand that we cannot trust ourselves even in our best moments, and on the other that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. So, just like the woman who was caught in adultery, in the book of John, Jesus said, go and sin no more. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about why sex outside of marriage is a problem. One is because it's not an exclusive relationship. Uh, it's not a permanent relationship. And typically the motive for engaging in it is something that's fleeting. And it's designed either for simple physical satisfaction or for a form of emotional intimacy. And so that is not according to God's design for sex. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, C.S. Lewis also said, I hope you like my little monster there. I thought about putting Grover, but uh, that sort of would detract from the message. Uh, Lewis said the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. Now, the word monstrosity, I think that that's a strong term. Um, and I, I think what Lewis is trying to point out is that apart from that life union commitment, that covenant commitment, that there's all kinds of damage that can result from sex outside of marriage, unwanted pregnancies, um, a sense of guilt, a sense of shame. Uh, these are things that really shouldn't be associated um, with sex. So what is God's design for sex? It's to be shared in a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman for the purpose of permanently and exclusively uniting their lives, expressing love, experiencing pleasure, and having children. So let's talk a little bit about dating relationships. First of all, what are our guiding ethical principles? I'm going to turn this way now. Number one, uh, faithful obedience to God. Faithful obedience to his design for sex. This is why we should do what we do. Um, it, it's not about letting the beast out of the cage. It's about obeying God because that's what God calls us to do. He is our king. He is our creator. He says, this is what's best for you. And therefore, he calls us to obedience. And secondly, loving your neighbor. This is the law. 
and it applies to sex. Love your, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Okay, now this is from Doug Rosnow and Todd Wilson. They wrote a book a while back called Soul Virgins, which is really a weird title for a book. But um, this is, I thought, was helpful. Uh, this is the Relationship Continuum Bridge. And so as you can see on the left side there, you've got connecting and friendship. And so that's the relationship that most of us have um, with other people, both same sex and opposite sex. And then uh, at some point you may consider um, moving a friendship to a dating relationship. Uh, And so along this continuum... Uh, you see you can kind of overlap the so-called coupling and then confirming and committing, which would involve engagement, and then finally covenanting uh, to be married together. So uh, we should be spending a lot of our time on the friendship side and the considering side, which means you can connect and develop a friendship without a romantic relationship, Do you see these two people up here having coffee? Are they? Yeah, okay. Um, Nobody should ask them when they're going to start dating. Nobody should ask them what they're going to name their... Amen? Amen. Right. What are they doing? They're connecting. They're trying to figure out, do, do, does, is this going to go anywhere? Don't put pressure on one another. Don't push one another someplace where they really don't want to go or don't need to go. I mean, you know, what if he slurps his coffee and it drives her crazy and she can't <laughs> date somebody? Or, or, you know, what if she takes her coffee with like five packets of uh, sugar and that drives him crazy? You, these things need to be experienced, enjoyed in an environment where there is not the pressure to couple up. Because the pressure to couple up comes from a lack of faith in the sovereignty of God. Because if you have that one person and you cling to them, not in the same way that you cling when you marry them, but as this is my last chance, well, that doesn't demonstrate faith in God's sovereignty. God will provide what you need when you need it, and until then, he has called you to singleness. All right, so... uh, (laughs) Pretty cheesy, isn't it? Yeah, I know. Um... So if you want to determine if you want to become a couple, you have to, you have to hang out. You've got to make googly eyes at each other over a sharing a soda. That's got to happen um, to see if there is a future. Uh, so you do a lot of stuff together. You know, back in, in the 50s when I taught cross-cultural... Well, I didn't teach cross-cultural psychology in the 50s. In cross-cultural psychology, I show a video uh, about dating, what to do on a date... And I actually had some really good ideas, you know, going in double dating and going.
going to different activities, uh, going to softball games, things, seeing each other, and this is not new stuff to you all, seeing each other in different social contexts, seeing how they treat a waiter, um, how they behave towards somebody um, who isn't a, a part of their family, the little things. Um, as you're doing this, considering your family of origin issues, are you trying to work something out and you're not aware of it? Is this person sort of an empty canvas that you're sort of working out your, your mother issues or your father issues? Try to be aware of that um, and identify the roles of lust, fear, and insecurity. Uh, your security is in Christ. Your identity is in Christ. You don't need another person. You want another person, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and also, don't mistake attraction for compatibility. You can be attracted to somebody, but be incompatible with them. So just some thoughts. Let's talk about coupling. Um, I hope you all are still using this. Are you still using DTR? Is that still a thing? Okay, all right. Um, it's a good thing. Um, men, women, it's a good thing to say, we really do need to talk about our relationship. If you feel like it's progressing, if one or both of you are giving each other some signals during the uh, connecting part of the relationship that maybe there's a future there, don't leave each other hanging. Don't sort of try to play your options. Be honest. Be intentional. Say, I think maybe this is going someplace and so I want to have an exclusive romantic relationship for the purpose of confirming a desire to move toward marriage. This is honest communication because one of you may say that to the other and the other person may freak out. <laughs> and you need to know that if they run away from you screaming. Um, but if you do make that commitment to one another, then uh, you will grow in emotional intimacy and you will learn to trust one another um, as you do see one another in different contexts and think about possibly marriage. But avoid the entanglements of sexual activity uh, because that will cloud your ability to determine your compatibility. Uh, when you begin to engage in activity that is reserved for the covenant of marriage, you begin to, de to develop an attachment to the person that you may or may not want to develop, which makes it that more difficult to uncouple should you decide that the relationship isn't appropriate. So let me make this distinction between affection and arousal. Affection involves uh, physical but non-sexual expressions of concern, care, compassion. Um, these are things that you would do that would demonstrate uh, your feelings of warmth toward a person um, without necessarily arousing them. And I'm going to talk more about arousal in a minute. Um, but arousal are those physical activities that actually begin to progress one or both of the individuals along the arousal cycle. So we're going to get all technical on you here. This is the arousal cycle as identified by uh, Masters and Johnson. Uh, it is, uh, involves the increase in 
various physiological processes as the people move toward um, the uh, consummation of the relationship in, into orgasm. But while they are uh, engaged in that behavior, and I don't know when exactly it happens, I don't think anybody's actually measured it. Oh, maybe they have, but I'm not familiar with it. Oxytocin is a hormone that is released, and it's been called the cuddle drug or the love drug. <clears throat> and the, uh, in God's wisdom, it is designed to bind mother and infant together during breastfeeding, and it's also uh, part of the sexual arousal process that binds people together. So if people are, are having are getting involved in sexual activity outside of marriage, there's that, that oxytocin is linking them together um, in a way that may not be healthy or appropriate for the direction that they're going. So you should also be aware of what are called erogenous zones. I'm assuming many of you do, but we think of them in terms of three levels. Erogenous zones are those parts of the body that have uh, denser nerve endings that respond to stimulation. Level three is sort of the, the skin of the whole body. That's kind of hard to avoid, like if you're shaking hands. Um, <laughs> you, you don't have to wear gloves. Um, then the second level of erogenous zones involves um, those parts of the body that are typically involved in, uh, in foreplay, which is the excitement and plateau. Uh, part of the cycle, um, they're listed up there. And then uh, level three are those things definitely involved in uh, sexual intercourse. Um, so uh, I think you can see why uh, it's good to avoid levels two and three um, before you're married. So uh, this is a comment from Dennis Hollinger in his excellent book called The Meaning of Sex. And he says that sexual intimacy outside of marriage uh, is, or excuse me, outside of intercourse is part of the sexual drama. Erotic kissing, fondling, and genital touching are all part of the journey to intercourse and orgasm. By their very nature, they emotionally and physio physiologically lead in that direction. <clears throat> so, in other words, these things are what starts the arousal cycle. Now, um, this is uh, a reflection of kind of where we're at with non-Christians and Christians. Uh, this is an intimacy curve, and in the secular culture, uh, you go zero to 60. All you got to do is swipe left or right. I don't know what they are, but you, you, the dating apps where you want to hook up with somebody, you can do that, and uh, boom, there you are. Now, um, the typical Christian... And I put typical in quotes because if, who knows what the typical Christian is. Um, are, is involved in um, kind of the further they go with the commitment level, uh, the closer they get to sexual intercourse, sometimes engaging in it before they're married. Um, and that leads to something we call technical virginity. There's been some research that shows that many people consider only vaginal intercourse to count as sexual activity. So anything else, any other behavior uh, is um, considered uh, okay. And 
the, the truth is, it's, it's not. It's part of the erotic drama. So if you are doing everything but not vaginal intercourse, you're doing something that really is reserved for marriage. Now, interesting fact from Mark Regneris. Uh, he noted that a majority of people who made absentee pledges um, broke their pledges and that in 70% of the cases, it wasn't with the person they ended up marrying. So, the question that everybody asks is how far can we go, right? How far can we go? It comes up in youth groups. Um, and it's an interesting metaphor in terms of going someplace, distance or mileage-wise, but is that's, is that the question we want to ask? It's really a question of the heart. The question should be, how can we build one another up? How can we enhance our communication with one another? So there really isn't a set rule about how far can you go. Um, always helps to be conservative, but it's also something that you can talk about. Uh, if you're in a relationship with somebody and you're thinking about committing, as you move along that relationship, you have to talk about these things. And it could be that for some people, all joking aside, holding hands could be arousing. And so because you want to lay your life down for the other person, considering them more important than yourself, you respect that. Uh, I do think the further along the arousal cycle you get, uh, the closer you get to sin. Now, um, now the reason I say sin is, A, it, it does violate God's design for sex, but it's not good for you. Sinning isn't good for you, and God as our loving Father wants us to know that. So, how about this for a countercultural intimacy curve? What if there was no sexual intimacy until you got married? Is that possible? Don't answer. Um, it may seem improbable at the, at the least, but remember that God has indwelt you with his Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. It is possible, especially if our motives are to be faithful to God and to be faithful to one another. So... Um, Let's think about countercultural relationships, and I'm almost done. Oh, I better hurry. Um, so, commit to trust in God's sovereignty. Uh, focus on spending as much time as you can on the friendship part of the bridge. There's nothing that says you have to sprint across the bridge. Uh, stay in the friendship part. Focus on enriching friendships. Uh, learn more about yourself, how you relate to other people. That will make you a better partner. Um, I like what Lewis says about um, lovers being face-to-face, -face, but friends being side-by-side. -side. They are standing together, facing uh, the same direction. They're doing something together. They're sharing interests. Um, they're not looking into each other's eyes. Um, so with the opposite sex, I have to admit I'm kind of proud of this, focus on building one another up instead of checking one another out. I know, it's kind of corny, but... <laughs> Thank you. No, no, no. Um, so, practice one anothering. 
Um, there are multiple passages in the New Testament where Paul encourages us to one another. I would encourage you to go look those up, one anothering. Here's a few of them. I'm not going to read them all. Uh, giving preference to one another, serving one another, regarding one another more important than yourselves, not lying to one another. Let me just talk about that in terms of the relationship. If you're in a relationship, um, leading somebody on, making them believe that you are more uh, interested in a romantic relationship than you really are, that's lying. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be honest. Be frank with the individual. So, um, men, ask a female friend or two, uh, what she thinks would improve male-female relationships. What would she like to see? What would make her comfortable? Uh, what would make her feel valued and prized and respected? And the same for men or women. Ask a male friend the same thing. And when you have this conversation, listen to understand, not to respond or defend. So let's pray together. Father God, you are indeed the great creator. You set the foundations of the earth. You told the ocean where it could go, where it would stop. You created man and woman to be in a complementary sexual relationship in the covenant of marriage. You gave us all sexual desires. I pray that we would all learn to steward them wisely and well, to glorify and honor you, and to love one another. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.